When the Hey, what is up, fellow wisdom seekers, fellow truth seekers, friends, haters, everybody else in between checking in on the Brave New World Order podcast straight out the catacombs of podcasting. I am Brandon St. One. First and foremost, I want to thank each and every one of you for joining me on my journey. And today we are going to go deep into Gnosticism. I think this is a great introduction to the Nagamati Library. And the first thing I'm going to dive into is a little reading by Elaine Pagels from her book, The Gnostic Gospels. It came out in 1989. And then I'm going to dive into the reality of the rulers straight out of the Nagamati Library. It's Codex number two, also known as the hypostasis of the archons. So this one, we're going to go deep into Gnosticism, which is a form of Christianity that goes way back, possibly even before Christianity, maybe to India, to Egypt, and a lot of the knowledge from those areas got wrapped up into Christianity when it was being formed. Maybe Jesus had that knowledge. Who knows? But there's no surprise that this knowledge has been hidden and suppressed and kept from us, probably because it reveals a little bit of the true nature of humans and how powerful we really are and how that is being suppressed by this material world that we live in and all the bullshit that goes along with it. So if you're interested in that stuff, Gnosticism is very, very interesting to think about, to read about, philosophize over. So thank you so much for joining me on my journey. We're going to dive into the Nag Hammadi Library and an excerpt from the 1989 book, The Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagels. But before we dive into the abyss, please take a second if you want to help out the Brave New World Order podcast and like, subscribe, follow on whatever platforms you listen to this podcast. It really helps out. That is the best thing you can do. And if you want, you can leave a review. And if you really like what I'm doing, you want to help the show grow, there are a couple links in the show notes. You can buy me a coffee or click the link and become a supporter of the show. I thank each and every one of you for joining me on this journey because that's what it's about. And if you want to reach out, you can. You can email me, the Brave New World Order Podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out on Twitter if you want to. I'm not really active on there. I go on there. But it's not really my thing. I might post when I have a new episode out, but it's really not my thing. But you can hit me up on there and DM me if you want to say what's up. Or you can email me, whatever. Reach out, connect, say what's up. I'd love to hear from you. Now, let's dive into the abyss. Let's become the abyss and come out of it with more knowledge and wisdom. This is the Nag Hammadi Library, the reality of the rulers and an excerpt from the Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagels. Okay, let's dive into the Nag Hammadi Library. What I'm going to read for you right now is from the book, The Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagels. And she's been writing about this stuff. The book came out in 1989. She's been writing about Gnosticism in the Nag Hammadi Library. She does great work on the book of Revelations and all this crazy stuff. There's some videos on YouTube. Check her out. But I'm going to read this because I think it's the perfect way to get introduced to the Nag Hammadi Library and what's in it and how it was discovered. So here we go. 
in December 1945, an Arab peasant made an astonishing archaeological discovery in Upper Egypt. Rumors obscured the circumstances of this find, perhaps because the discovery was accidental and its sale on the black market illegal. For years, even the identity of the discoverer remained unknown. One rumor held that he was a blood avenger, another that he had made the find near the town of Naj Hammadi at the Jabal al-Tarif, a mountain honeycombed with more than 150 caves. Originally natural, some of these caves were cut and painted and used as grave sites as early as the 6th dynasty, some 4,300 years ago. 30 years later, the discoverer himself, Muhammad Ali al-Saman, told what happened. Shortly before he and his brothers avenged their father's murder in a blood feud, they had saddled their camels and gone out to the Jabal to dig for Sabak, a soft soil they used to fertilize their crops. Digging around a massive boulder, they hit a red earthenware jar, almost a meter high. Muhammad Ali hesitated to break the jar, considering that a jinn or spirit might live inside. But realizing that it might also contain gold, he raised his mattock, smashed the jar, and discovered inside 13 papyrus books, bound in leather. Returning to his home in Al-Qasar, Muhammad Ali dumped the books and loose papyrus leaves on the straw piled on the ground next to the oven. Muhammad's mother admits that she burned much of the papyrus in the oven along with the straw she used to kindle the fire. A few weeks later, as Muhammad Ali tells it, he and his brothers avenged their father's death by murdering Ahmed Ismail. Their mother had warned her sons to keep their mattocks sharp when they learned that their father's enemy was nearby. The brothers seized the opportunity, hacked off his limbs, ripped out his heart, and devoured it among them as the ultimate act of blood revenge. Fearing that the police investigating the murder would search his house and discover the books, Muhammad Ali asked the priest to keep one or more for him. During the time Muhammad Ali and his brothers were being interrogated for murder, a local history teacher had seen one of the books and suspected that it had value. Having received one from the priest, he sent it to a friend in Cairo to find its worth. Sold on the black market through antiquities dealers in Cairo, the manuscript soon attracted the attention of officials of the Egyptian government. Through circumstances of high drama, as we shall see, they bought one and confiscated ten and a half of the thirteen leather-bound books, called codices, and deposited them into the Coptic Museum in Cairo. But a large part of the thirteenth codex, containing five extraordinary texts, was smuggled out of Egypt and offered for sale in America. Word of this codex soon reached Professor Giles Gespel, distinguished historian of religion at Utrecht in the Netherlands. Excited by the discovery, Crispell urged the young foundation in Zurich to buy the codex, but discovering when he succeeded that some pages were missing. He flew to Egypt in the spring of 1955 to try to find them in the Coptic Museum. Arriving in Cairo, he went at once to the Coptic Museum, borrowed photographs of some of the texts, and hurried back to his hotel to decipher them. Tracing out the first line, Crispell was startled then incredulous to read. These are the secret words which the living Jesus spoke, in which the twin Judas Thomas wrote down. Crispell knew that his colleague H.C. Pueck, using notes from another French scholar, 
Jean Doresse had identified the opening lines with fragments of a Greek gospel of Thomas discovered in the 1890s. But the discovery of the whole text raised new questions. Did Jesus have a twin brother, as this text implies? Could the text be an authentic record of Jesus' sayings? According to its title, it contained the gospel according to Thomas. Yet, unlike the gospels of the New Testament, this text identified itself as a secret gospel. Cuspell also discovered that it contained many sayings known from the New Testament, but these sayings placed in unfamiliar contexts suggested other dimensions of meaning. Other passages Cuspell found differed entirely from any known Christian tradition. The living Jesus, for example, speaks in sayings as cryptic and compelling as Zen cones. Jesus said, If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. What Cuspell held in his hand, the Gospel of Thomas, was only one of the 52 texts discovered at Nag Hammadi, the usual English transliteration of the town's name. Bound into the same volume with it is the Gospel of Philip, which attributes to Jesus' acts and sayings quite different from those in the New Testament. For example, the companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene, but Christ loved her more than all the other disciples and used to kiss her often on her mouth. The rest of the disciples were offended. They said to him, Why do you love her, her more than all of us? The Savior answered and said to them, Why do I not love you as I love her? Other sayings in this collection criticize common Christian beliefs, such as the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection, as naive misunderstandings. Bound together with these Gospels is the Apocryphon, literally secret book of John, which opens with an offer to reveal the mysteries and the things hidden in silence, which Jesus taught to his disciple John. Muhammad Ali later admitted that some of the texts were lost, burned up, or thrown away. But what remains is astonishing. Some 52 texts from the early centuries of the Christian era, including a collection of early Christian Gospels, previously unknown. Besides the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, the find included the Gospel of Truth and the Gospel to the Egyptians, which identifies itself as the sacred book of the great invisible spirit. Another group of texts consists of writings attributed to Jesus' followers, such as the secret book of James, the Apocalypse of Paul, the letter of Peter to Philip, and the Apocalypse of Peter. What Muhammad Ali discovered at Nag Hammadi, it soon became clear, were Coptic translations, made about 1,500 years ago, of still more ancient manuscripts. The originals themselves had been written in Greek, the language of the New Testament. As Doresi, Puik, and Quispel had recognized, part of one of them had been discovered by archaeologists about 50 years earlier when they found a few fragments of the original Greek version of the Gospel of Thomas. About the dating of the manuscripts themselves, there is little debate. Examination of the datable papyrus used to thicken the letter bindings and of the Coptic script placed them 
around 350 to 400 AD, but scholars sharply disagree about the dating of the original texts. Some of them can hardly be later than 120 to 150 AD, since Irenaeus, the Orthodox Bishop of Lyons, writing 100 AD, declares that heretics boast that they possess more Gospels than there really are, and complains that in his time such writings already have won wide circulation from Gaul through Rome, Greece, and Asia Minor. Huspel and his collaborators, who first published the Gospel of Thomas, suggested the date of 140 AD for the original, some reason that since these Gospels were heretical, they must have been written later than the Gospels of the New Testament, which are dated around 60 to 110 AD. But recently, Professor Helmut Koster of Harvard University has suggested that the collection of sayings in the Gospel of Thomas, although compiled in around 140 AD, may include some traditions even older than the Gospels of the New Testament, possibly as early as the second half of the first century, as early as or earlier than Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. Scholars investigating the Nag Hammadi find discovered that some of the texts tell the origin of the human race in terms very different from the usual readings of Genesis. The testimony of truth, for example, tells the story of the Garden of Eden from the viewpoint of the serpent. Here, the serpent, long known to appear in Gnostic literature as the principle of divine wisdom, convinces Adam and Eve to partake of knowledge while the Lord threatens them with death, trying jealousy to prevent them from attaining knowledge and expelling them from paradise when they achieve it. Another text, mysteriously entitled The Thunder, Perfect Mind, offers an extraordinary poem spoken in the voice of a feminine divine power. For I am the first and the last. I am the honored one and the scorned one. I am the whore and the holy one. I am the wife and the virgin. I am the barren one, and many are her sons. I am the silence that is incomprehensible. I am the utterance of my name. These diverse texts range, then, from secret gospels, poems, and quasi-philosophical descriptions of the origin of the universe, to myths, magic, and instructions for mystical practice. Why were these texts buried, and why have they remained virtually unknown for nearly 2,000 years? Their suppression as banned documents and their burial on the cliff at Nag Hammadi, it turns out, were both part of a struggle critical for the formation of early Christianity. The Nag Hammadi texts and others like them, which circulated at the beginning of the Christian era, were denounced as heresy by Orthodox Christians in the middle of the 2nd century. We have long known that many early followers of Christ were condemned by other Christians as heretics, but nearly all we knew about them came from what their opponents wrote attacking them. Bishop Irenaeus, who supervised the church in Lyons circa 100 AD, wrote five volumes entitled The Destruction and Overthrow of Falsely So-Called Knowledge, which begin with his promise to set forth the views of those who are now teaching heresy to show how absurd and inconsistent with the truth are their statements. I do this so that you may urge all those with whom you are connected to avoid such an abyss of madness and of blasphemy against Christ. 
he denounces as especially full of blasphemy a famous gospel called the gospel of truth. Is Irenaeus referring to the same gospel of truth discovered at Nag Hammadi? Crispell and his collaborators who first published the gospel of truth argued that he is. One of their critics maintains that the opening line which begins the gospel of truth is not a title, but Irenaeus does use the same source as at least one of the texts discovered at Nag Hammadi, the Apocryphon, secret book of John, as ammunition for his own attack on such heresy. Fifteen years later, Hippolytus, a teacher in Rome, wrote another massive refutation of all heresies to expose and refute the wicked blasphemy of the heretics. This campaign against heresy involved an involuntary admission of his persuasive power, yet the bishops prevailed. By the time of the Emperor Constantine's conversion, when Christianity became an officially approved religion in the 4th century, Christian bishops, previously victimized by the police, now commanded them. Possession of books denounced as heretical was made a criminal offense. Copies of such books were burned and destroyed. But in Upper Egypt, someone, possibly a monk from a nearby monastery of St. Pacomius, took the banned books and hid them from destruction in the jar where they remained buried for almost 1,600 years. But those who wrote and circulated these texts did not regard themselves as heretics. Most of these writings use Christian terminology, unmistakable related to a Jewish heritage. Many claim to offer traditions about Jesus that are secret, hidden from the many who constitute what, in the second century, came to be called the Catholic Church. These Christians are now called Gnostics, from the Greek word gnosis, usually translated as knowledge. For as those who claim to know nothing about the ultimate reality are called agnostic, literally not knowing, the person who does claim to know such things is called Gnostic, knowing, but gnosis is not primarily rational knowledge. The Greek language distinguishes between scientific or reflective knowledge. He knows mathematics, and knowing through observation or experience, he knows me, which is gnosis. As the Gnostics use the term, we could translate it as insight, for gnosis involves an intuitive process of knowing oneself, and to know oneself, they claimed, is to know human nature and human destiny. According to the Gnostic teacher Theodotus, writing in Asia Minor, circa 140 to 160 AD, the Gnostic is one has come to understand who we were and what we have become, where we were, whither we are hastening, from what we are being released, what birth is, and what is rebirth. Yet to know oneself at the deepest level is simultaneously to know God. This is the secret of Gnosis. Another Gnostic teacher, Monoamist, says, Abandon the search for God in the creation and other matters of a similar sort. Look for him by taking yourself as the starting point. Learn who it is within you who makes everything his own and says, My God, my mind, my thought, my soul, my body. Learn the sources of sorrow, joy, love, hate. If you carefully investigate these matters, you will find him in yourself. What Muhammad Ali discovered at Nag Hammadi is apparently a library of writings, almost all of them Gnostic. 
Although they claim to offer secret teaching, many of these texts refer to the scriptures of the Old Testament and others to the letters of Paul and the New Testament Gospels. Many of them include the same dramatic persona as the New Testament, Jesus, and his disciples. Yet, the differences are striking. Orthodox Jews and Christians insist that a chasm separates humanity from its creator. God is wholly other. But some of the Gnostics who wrote these Gospels contradict this. Self-knowledge is knowledge of God. The self and the divine are identical. Second, the living Jesus of these texts speaks of an illusion and enlightenment, not of sin and repentance, like the Jesus of the New Testament. Instead of coming to save us from sin, he comes as a guide who opens access to spiritual understanding. But when the disciple attains enlightenment, Jesus no longer serves as his spiritual master. The two have become equal, even identical. Third, Orthodox Christians believe that Jesus is Lord and Son of God in a unique way. He remains forever distinct from the rest of humanity whom he came to save. Yet the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas relates that as soon as Thomas recognizes him, Jesus says to Thomas that they both have received their being from the same source. Jesus said, I am not your master, but you have drunk, you have become drunk from the bubbling stream which I have measured out. He who will drink from my mouth will become as I am. I myself shall become he, and the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. Does not such teaching, the identity of the divine and human, the concern with illusion and enlightenment, the founder who is presented not as Lord, but as spiritual guide, sound more Eastern than Western? Some scholars have suggested that if the names were changed, the living Buddha appropriately you could say what the Gospel of Thomas attributes to the living Jesus. Could Hindu or Buddhist tradition have influenced Gnosticism? The British scholar of Buddhism, Edward Cones, suggests that it had. He points out that Buddhists were in contact with the Thomas Christians, that is, Christians who knew and used such writings as the Gospel of Thomas in South India. Trade routes between the Greco-Roman world and the Far East were opening up at the time when Gnosticism flourished, around 80 to 200 AD. For generations, Buddhist missionaries had been proselytizing in Alexandria. We note, too, that Hippolytus, who was a Greek-speaking Christian in Rome, circa 225 AD, knows of the Indian Brahmins and includes their tradition among the sources of heresy. He wrote, There is among the Indians, a heresy of those who philosophize among the Brahmins, who live a self-sufficient life, abstaining from eating living creatures and all cooked food. They say that God is light, not like the light one sees, nor like the sun, nor fire, but to them God is discourse, not that which finds expression in articulate sounds, but that of knowledge, gnosis through which the secret mysteries of nature are perceived by the wise. Could the title of the Gospel of Thomas, named for the disciple who, tradition tells us, went to India, suggest the influence of Indian tradition? These hints indicate the possibility, yet our evidence is not conclusive. Since parallel traditions may emerge in different cultures at different times, such ideas could have developed in both places independently. What we call Eastern and Western religions 
and tend to regard as separate streams were not clearly differentiated 2,000 years ago. Research on the Nag Hammadi texts is only the beginning. We look forward to the work of scholars who can study these traditions comparatively to discover whether they can, in fact, be traced to Indian sources. Even so, ideas that we associate with Eastern religions emerged in the first century through the Gnostic movement in the West, but they were suppressed and condemned by polemicists like Arrhenius. Yet those who call Gnosticism heresy were adopting consciously are not the viewpoint of that group of Christians who called themselves Orthodox Christians. A heretic may be anyone whose outlook someone else dislikes or denounces. According to tradition, a heretic is one who deviates from the true faith. But what defines that true faith? Who calls it that? And for what reasons? We find this problem familiar in our own experience. The term Christianity, especially since the Reformation, has covered an astonishing range of groups. Those claiming to represent true Christianity in the 20th century can range from a Catholic cardinal in the Vatican to an African Methodist Episcopal preacher initiating revival in Detroit, a Mormon missionary in Thailand, or the member of a village church on the coast of Greece. Yet Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox agree that such diversity is a recent and deplorable development. According to Christian legend, the early church was different. Christians of every persuasion looked back to the primitive church to find a simpler, purer form of Christian faith. In the apostles' time, all members of the Christian community shared their money and property, all believed the same teaching, and worshipped together. All revered the authority of the apostles. It was only after that golden age, that conflict, then heresy emerged. So says the author of the Acts of the Apostles, who identifies himself as the first historian of Christianity. But the discoveries at Nag Hammadi have upset this picture. If we admit that some of these 52 texts represent early forms of Christian teaching, we may have to recognize that early Christianity is far more diverse than nearly anyone expected before the Nag Hammadi discoveries. Contemporary Christianity, diverse and complex as we find it, actually may show more unanimity than the Christian churches of the 1st and 2nd centuries. For nearly all Christians since that time, Catholics, Protestants, or Orthodox, have shared three basic premises. First, they accept the canon of the New Testament. Second, they confess the Apostolic Creed. And third, they affirm specific forms of church institution. But every one of these, the canon of Scripture, the Creed, and the institutional structure emerged in its present form only toward the end of the second century. Before that time, as Irenaeus and others attest, numerous gospels circulated amongst various Christian groups, ranging from those of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to such writings as the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, and the Gospel of Truth, as well as many other secret teachings, myths, and poems attributed to Jesus or his disciples. Some of these apparently were discovered at Nag Hammadi. Many others are lost to us. Those who identified themselves as Christians entertained many and radically differing religious beliefs and practices, and the communities scattered throughout the known world organized themselves in ways that differed widely from one group to another. 
yet by AD 200, situation had changed Christianity, had become an institution headed by a three-rank hierarchy of bishops, priests, and deacons who understood themselves to be the guardians of the only true faith. The majority of churches, among which the Church of Rome took a leading role, rejected all other viewpoints as heresy, deploring the diversity of the earlier movement. Bishop Irenaeus and his followers insisted that there could be only one church, and outside of that church, he declared, there is no salvation. Members of this church alone are orthodox, literally straight-thinking Christians, and he claimed this church must be Catholic, that is, universal. Whoever challenged that consensus, arguing instead for other forms of Christian teaching, was declared to be a heretic and expelled. When the Orthodox gained military support, sometime after the Emperor Constantine became Christian in the 4th century, the penalty for heresy escalated. All right, so that was a good introduction into the Nag Hammadi Library and Gnosticism. And now that I read that, I want to read from Codex 2 of the Nag Hammadi Library, which is translated by Bentley Layton. And it is called The Hypostasis of the Archons, The Reality of the Rulers. On account of the reality of the authorities, inspired by the Spirit of the Father of Truth, the Great Apostle, referring to the authorities of the darkness, told us, that our contest is not against flesh and blood. Rather, the authorities of the universe and the spirits of wickedness. I have sent this to you because you inquire about the reality of the authorities. Their chief is blind. Because of his power and his ignorance and his arrogance, he said, with his power, It is I who am God. There is none apart from me. When he said this, he sinned against the entirety. And this speech got up to incorruptibility. Then there was a voice that came forth from incorruptibility saying, You are mistaking Samael, which is God of the blind. His thoughts became blind. And having expelled his power, that is, the blasphemy he had spoken, he pursued it down to chaos and the abyss. His mother, at the instigation of Pistis Sophia, and she established each of his offspring in conformity with its power, after the pattern of the realms that are above. For by starting from the invisible world, the visible world was invented. As incorruptibility looked down into the region of the waters, her image appeared in the waters, and the authorities of the darkness became enamored of her, but they could not lay hold of that image, which had appeared to them in the waters, because of their weakness since beings that merely possess a soul cannot lay hold of those that possess a spirit, for they were from below, while it was from above. This is the reason why incorruptibility looked down into the region, so that by the Father's will he might bring the entirety into union with the light. The rulers laid plans and said, Come, let us create a man that will be soil from the earth. They modeled their creature, as one holy of the earth. Now the ruler's body they have. Female is with the face of a beast. They had taken some soil from the earth and modeled their man after their body and after the image of God that had appeared to them in the waters. 
they said, come, let us lay hold of it by means of the form that we have modeled so that it may see its male counterpart and we may seize it with the form that we have modeled, not understanding the force of God because of their powerlessness. And he breathed into his face and the man came to have a soul and remained upon the ground many days, but they could not make him arise because of their powerlessness. Like storm winds, they persisted in blowing that they might try to capture that image which had appeared to them in the waters, and they did not know the identity of its power. Now all these things came to pass by the will of the Father of the entirety. Afterwards, the Spirit saw the soul-endowed man upon the ground, and the Spirit came forth from the adamantine land. It descended and came to dwell within him, and that man became a living soul. It called his name Adam, since he was found moving upon the ground. A voice came forth from incorruptibility for the assistance of Adam, and the rulers gathered together all the animals of the earth and all the birds of heaven and brought them into Adam to see what Adam would call them, that he might give a name to each of the birds and all the beasts. They took Adam and put him in the garden, that he might cultivate it and keep watch over it. And the rulers issued a command to him, saying, From every tree in the garden shall you eat, yet from the tree of recognizing good and evil do not eat nor touch it, for the day you eat from it, with death you are going to die. They, this, they do not understand what they have said to him. Rather, by the Father's will, they said this in such a way that he might, in fact, eat, and that Adam might not regard them as would a man of an exclusively material nature. The rulers took counsel with one another and said, Come, let us cause a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept. Now the deep sleep that they caused to fall upon him, and he slept, is ignorance. They opened his side like a living woman, and they built up his side with some flesh in place of her. And Adam came to be endowed only with soul. And the spirit-endowed woman came to him and spoke with him, saying, Arise, Adam. And when he saw her, he said, It is you who have given me life. You will be called mother of the living, for it is she who is my mother. It is she who is the physician and the woman, and she has given birth. Then the authorities came up to their Adam, and when they saw his female counterpart speak with him, they became agitated with great agitation, and they became enamored of her. They said to one another, Come, let us sow our seed in her. And they pursued her, and she laughed at them for their witlessness and their blindness, and in their clutches she became a tree, and left before them her shadowy reflection, resembling herself, and they defiled it foully, and they defiled the stamp of her voice, so that by the form they had modeled, together with their own image, they made themselves liable to condemnation. Then the female spiritual principle came in the snake, the instructor, and taught them, saying, What did he say to you? Was it, From every tree in the garden shall you eat, yet from the tree of recognizing good and evil do not eat? The carnal woman said, Not only did he say, Do not eat, but even, Do not touch it, for the day you eat from it, with death 
you are going to die. And the snake, the instructor said, with death, you shall not die. For it was out of jealousy that he said this to you. Rather, your eyes shall open and you shall come to be like gods, recognizing evil and good. And the female instructing principle was taken away from the snake, and she left it behind, merely a thing of the earth. And the carnal woman took from the tree and ate, and she gave to her husband as well as herself, as these beings that possessed only a soul ate, and their imperfection became apparent in their lack of knowledge, and they recognized that they were naked of the spiritual element, and took fig leaves and bound them upon their loins. Then the chief ruler came, and he said, Adam, where are you? For he did not understand what had happened. And Adam said, I heard your voice, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid. The ruler said, Why did you hide, unless it was because you have eaten from the tree, from which alone I commanded you not to eat, and you have eaten? Adam said, The woman that you gave me, she gave to me, and I ate. And the arrogant ruler cursed the woman. The woman said, It was the snake that led me astray, and I ate. They turned to the snake and cursed its shadowy reflection, powerless, not comprehending that it was a form they themselves had modeled. From that day, the snake came to be under the curse of the authorities until the all-powerful man was to come, that curse fell upon the snake. They turned to their Adam and took him and expelled him from the garden along with his wife, for they have no blessing, since they too are beneath the curse. Moreover, they threw mankind into great distraction and into a life of toil, so that their mankind might be occupied by worldly affairs and might not have the opportunity of being devoted to the Holy Spirit. Now afterwards, she bore Cain, their son, and Cain cultivated the land. Thereupon he knew his wife again, becoming pregnant. She bore Abel, and Abel was a herdsman of sheep. Now Cain brought in from the crops of his field, but Abel brought in an offering from among his lambs. God looked upon the votive offerings of Abel, but he did not accept the votive offerings of Cain and carnal Cain pursued Abel, his brother. And God said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He answered, saying, Am I then my brother's keeper? God said to Cain, Listen, the voice of your brother's blood is crying up to me. You have sinned with your mouth. It will return to you. Anyone who kills Cain will let loose seven vengeances, and you will exist groaning and trembling upon the earth. And Adam knew his female counterpart Eve, and she became pregnant and bore Seth to Adam. And she said, I have borne another man through God in place of Abel. Again, Eve became pregnant, and she bore Noria. And she said, He has begotten on me a virgin as an assistance for many generations of mankind. She is the virgin whom the forces did not defile. Then mankind began to multiply and improve. The rulers took counsel with one another and said, Come, let us cause a deluge with our hands and obliterate all flesh from man to beast. But when the ruler of the forces came to know of the decision, he said to Noah, Make yourself an ark from some wood that does not rot and hide in it. 
you and your children and the beasts and the birds of the heavens from small to large and set it upon Mount Sir. Then Noria came to him, wanting to board the ark, and when he would not let her, she blew upon the ark and caused it to be consumed by fire. Again he made the ark for a second time. The rulers went to meet her, intending to lead her astray. Their supreme chief said to her, Your mother Eve came to us. But Noria turned to them and said to them, It is you who are the rulers of the darkness. You are accursed, and you did not know my mother. Instead, it was your female counterpart that you knew, for I am not your descendant. Rather, it is from the world above that I am come. The arrogant ruler turned with all his might, and his countenance came to be like a black. He said to her presumptuously, You must render service to us, as did also your mother Eve, for I have been given. But Noria turned with the might of, and in a loud voice, she cried out up to the Holy One, the God of the entirety, Rescue me from the rulers of the unrighteousness, and save me from their clutches, forthwith. The great angel came down from the heavens and said to her, Why are you crying up to God? Why do you act so boldly towards the Holy Spirit? Noria said, Who are you? As the rulers of unrighteousness had withdrawn from her, he said, It is I who am Elilith, sagacity, the great angel who stands in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I have been sent to speak with you and save you from the grasp of the lawless, and I shall teach you about your root. Noria apparently now speaking. Now, as for that angel, I cannot speak of his power. His appearance is like fine gold, and his raiment is like snow. No, truly, my mouth cannot bear to speak of his power and the appearance of his face. Aleleth, the great angel, spoke to me. It is I, he said, who am understanding. I am one of the four light givers who stand in the presence of the great invisible spirit. Do you think these rulers have any power over you? None of them can prevail against the root of truth. For on its account, he appeared in the final ages. And these authorities will be restrained. And these authorities cannot defile you and that generation. For your abode is in incorruptibility, where the virgin spirit dwells, who is superior to the authorities of chaos and to their universe. But I said, Sir, teach me about the faculty of these authorities, how did they come into being, and by what kind of genesis, and of what material, and who created them and their force. And the great angel Elilith, understanding, spoke to me. Within limitless realms dwells incorruptibility. Sophia, who is called Pistis, wanted to create something, alone, without her consort, and her product was a celestial thing. A veil exists between the world above and the realms that are below, and shadow came into being beneath the veil, and that shadow became matter, and that shadow was projected apart, and what she had created became a product in the matter, like an aborted fetus, and it assumed a plastic form molded out of shadow, and became an arrogant beast resembling a lion. It was androgynous, as I have already said, because it was from matter that it derived. Opening his eyes, he saw a vast quantity of matter without limit, and he became arrogant, saying, 
It is I who am God, and there is none other apart from me. When he said this, he sinned against the entirety, and a voice came forth from above the realm of absolute power, saying, You are mistaken, Samael, which is God of the blind. And he said, If any other thing exists before me, let it become visible to me. And immediately Sophia stretched forth her finger and introduced light into matter, and she pursued it down to the region of chaos, and she returned up to her light, once again darkness, matter. This ruler, by being androgynous, made himself a vast realm, an extent without limit, and he contemplated creating offspring for himself, and created for himself seven offspring, androgynous, just like their parent. And he said to his offspring, It is I who am God of the entirety. And Zoe, life, the daughter of Pistis Sophia, cried out and said to him, You are mistaken, Sakla, for which the alternative name is Yaltaboath. She breathed into his face, and her breath became a fiery angel for her, and that angel bound Yaldoboath and cast him down into Tartarus, below the abyss. Now when his offspring, Sabaoth, saw the force of that angel, he repented and condemned his father and his mother, Matter. He loathed her, but he sang songs of praise up to Sophia and her daughter Zoe, and Sophia and Zoe caught him up and gave him charge of the seventh heaven, below the veil between above and below. And he is called God of the forces, Sabaoth, since he is up above the forces of chaos, for Sophia established him. Now when these events had come to pass, he made himself a huge four-faced chariot of cherubim, and infinitely many angels to act as ministers, and also harps and lyres. And Sophia took her daughter Zoe, and had her sit upon his right to teach him about the things that exist in the eighth heaven, and the angel of wrath she placed upon his left. Since that day, his right has been called life, and the left has come to represent the unrighteousness of the realm of absolute power above. It was before your time that they came into being. Now when Yaldoboath saw him, Sabaoth, in this great splendor, and at this height, he envied him, and the envy became an androgynous product, and this was the origin of envy. And envy engendered death, and death engendered his offspring, and gave each of them charge of its heaven, and all the heavens of chaos became full of their multitudes. But it was by the will of the Father of the entirety that they all came into being, after the pattern of all the things above, so that the sum of chaos might be attained. There I have taught you about the pattern of the rulers, and the matter in which it was expressed, and their parent and their universe. But I said, Sir, am I also from their matter? You, together with your offspring, are from the primeval father, from above, out of the imperishable light. Their souls are come. Thus, the authorities cannot approach them, because of the spirit of truth present within them. And all who have become acquainted with this way exist deathless in the midst of dying mankind. Still, that sown element will not become known now. Instead, after three generations, it will come to be known, and it has freed them from the bondage of the authority's error. Then I said, Sir, how much longer? He said to me, until the moment when the true man, within a modeled form, reveals the existence of the spirit of truth, 
which the Father has sent. Then he will teach them about everything, and he will anoint them with the unction of life eternal given him from the undominated generation. Then they will be freed of blind thought, and they will trample underfoot death, which is of the authorities, and they will ascend into the limitless light where this sown element belongs. Then the authorities will relinquish their ages, and their angels will weep over their destruction, and their demons will lament their death. Then all the children of the light will be truly acquainted with the truth and their root, and the Father of the entirety and the Holy Spirit. They will all say with a single voice, The Father's truth is just, and the Son presides over the entirety and from everyone unto the ages of ages. Holy, 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 amen. The reality of the rulers. All right, thank you so much for joining me on that journey into the Nag Hammadi Library and the reality of the rulers, also known as the hypostasis of the archons. I find that very interesting. I hope you did too. Let me know what you think. Reach out, leave a review. Email me, the Brave New World Order Podcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Brave NWO Podcast. Also, if you're listening on Spotify, there's a question there. If you can answer it, if you like this episode, if you don't want to, that's fine too. Anything to just help out if you enjoy the show, I really, really appreciate it. I thank you all just coming along with me. That's what it's about. It's about the journey, it's about the wisdom. Share this with your friends, your family, random people on the street when you're walking down to the store. Let them know that they can tune in to the Brave New World Order podcast for an ad-free listening experience. If you want to help the show out, you can. There are a couple links in the show notes. I thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart. It's just me putting this show together. It means the world to me that you tune in, that you follow. I see the numbers. Much love. I will see you soon. In the meantime, stay positive, question everything, and think for yourself. Peace out.